Welcome to Innovating Leadership, Co-Creating Our Future. I'm your host, Maureen Metcalf, founder and CEO of the Innovative Leadership Institute. I am delighted that we have on the 2022 International Leadership Association Global Conference in Washington, D.C., Rita Jo Lewis, who's taking an hour out of a massively busy schedule. Rita Jo is president and chair of the board of the Export-Import Bank of the United States. Maureen, I am just so delighted to be talking about leadership. I joined XM after being Senate confirmed. XM is America's only export credit agency. And this credit agency has been around for over 88 years. We are the institution that is there to support America's businesses as they are seeking to compete and to win business abroad. The work that we do is about how do we provide more financing, whether it's direct loans, whether it's working capital for small business, whether it is providing loan guarantees and insurance for businesses. You are passionate about women, women in entrepreneurship. How did you get here? (laughs) You have worked hard and you've overcome a lot. Tell us a little bit about your journey and what people can't necessarily hear is you're also a woman of color, which makes that journey even more difficult. At this moment in history, it's great to be in a critical position to play a role in fostering economic opportunities for U.S. companies in our workforce. I look at this as a perfect place to be at this time in our America's history and at this time in this administration. As a woman of color, I am the first black female and the first African-American to serve as the chair of XM. I'm only the second woman in the history of the agency to serve as the president and chair. So, you know, you you come into this role with that backdrop, and you then have to say to yourself, as I did on so many occasions, feeling very prepared to assume this role that has been served so well by others in, in so many capacities. I have to hearken back to my family. I come from parents who were both small business owners. When I was 13, growing up in Georgia, Uh, in rural Georgia. My parents opened up their first business. And as entrepreneurs of a moving and logistics company in the corner grocery store, my sisters and I grew up in a family that was all about work. And work, family, how could you then make a contribution back to your community? I mean, my parents were real critical in the sense that they always instilled in us, it's not just about the work and the betterment of your family, it's about the betterment of the community at the community at large. And so when I watched my parents work every day, they were there themselves creating jobs. They were being a major contributor to the city's economy. But they were also community leaders, political leaders, civic leaders, church leaders. And you realize you have to kind of do a little bit of everything. I grew up understanding how important it is in a community to be about the business of business and to be about the business of entrepreneurship and to watch my parents over the years with the opportunities that they had, but also the challenges that they went through as business owners. You're always looking at financing. You're always looking at workforce. You're always looking at how does one balance work, life, family, community. I grew up with a family that was going through all those issues, and I thought my parents did it very well. And I And I look at my sisters and brothers now who are 
very much community-minded as I am, no matter what profession that they find themselves in. As a clerk in grocery yeah. or saved up enough money exactly. to take out the law to buy the flower shop from someone. And when you talk about community, the group of flower shop owners <laughs> got together on Sunday mornings or some, maybe it was Saturday mornings. It was the least busy morning of the week, so it was probably Sunday, and talked about what they were seeing and how could they navigate together the challenges they faced. So while they did compete, yeah. they also collaborated so that everyone got through, whether it was a shortage of roses or <laughs> or financing or labor. In some ways, these challenges have always been ups and downs. And that was before I was born. So she probably started this in the 50s. I grew up in the segregated South. And uh, when I was in the seventh grade, it was right around the same time when my parents was, was starting their business. And so my parents asked my sisters and I, did we want to be a part of a test case? Because one of the things that my father was very adamant about is just making sure that each of us got a great education. His biggest thing was, you know, an education is something that no one can take away from. And he wanted to make sure that his children had the best. And at that time, when you come through that era of integration, you realize that you're very goal-oriented, you're very mission-oriented. And the mission then was to get just to get the best education so that you could have a foundation, so that you can move your life forward and be able to take care of your own family if you, you know, were fortunate to have one, and yourself <laughs> even. But throughout all of that, when you are growing up and you watch your father and your mother who own businesses, and you see them dealing with financial issues every day. You see them dealing with personnel every day. You see them dealing with well, how are they going to grow their business. And I watched uh, my parents who were, you know, serial entrepreneurs, but they always had a mainstay. They always had a foundation of what it is that they were doing to be able to raise, you know, six children at that time. Well, I have one brother and, and there's four sisters. One has one passed uh, several years ago. But to know full well that he just wanted to see not only opportunities for us, but opportunities for others. And so your family's business kind of become a central point in a community. When I look at things that I do, it's always not just about myself. It always has to be about in service to something else bigger and greater than you. And mostly it's about being of service in your community. Since we're at the International Leadership Association Conference, I was struck by the question of how do you define leadership? So I would love to hear what's a good leader to you? I first start off with my parents. My parents were leaders in the community. They were business leaders. They were church leaders. They were civic leaders. They were civic leaders in filing lawsuits against the school system so that blacks uh, at that time could get an equal education. They were leaders in the church, and they were leaders in running organizations. My mother was a leader, the president, founder of the NAACP. My father became the secretary of the Democratic Party in my, my hometown. So my example of that started, I think, with them and the foundation, which I think served me very well. Because one of the things you have to see about leaders is how hard you have to work and what you have to balance in order to even be an active participant if you want to make a contribution and if you want to have an impact. 
but also being unselfish, you want to have it not just for yourself and your family, but how do you spread that? How do you bring others into that process? And so I think that was one of my earliest role models, knowing that there's something greater than yourself. If you look at it that way, it can guide you throughout your career. I fast forward to having been very fortunate to have worked throughout my professional career to some great Democratic leaders. I would say, you know, having an aspiration to wanting to serve in the White House. I was fortunate that my first encounter with presidential aspirations was when I became a presidential management fellow. And uh, as they say, I'm dating myself now, but (laughs) with, with President Jimmy Carter, when he came in and wanted to look at young people who were getting master's degrees in these public policy schools, I went to American University. They wanted to bring that talent into government and give them a leg up. And of course, it was very competitive and public policy schools all across the country competed with their students. But being able to be selected in that program, which was a two-year program, and then you uh, participate in it, it guaranteed you, if you completed the program, to be able to come in at that mid-range in government and then promote it upward and hopefully to lift you into management in the government. I was fortunate. I had a rotation uh, in that program, and I rotated out and started working at the National League of Cities, and then I actually ended up staying there. So that becomes part of my journey of how I am always so supportive of state and local leaders, because that's part of my foundation of having worked for cities. You know, as they say, once you get the bug, you continue along your journey. And part of that journey is working, having worked for President Bill Clinton in the White House. I had worked in the campaign, and President Clinton was uh, someone who I admired and worked through in the campaign. And with my background and experience, was able to, once he won, to be asked to join the administration uh, in the White House as one of his political assistants. And so, you know, you have to take a step back when you look at these kind of political figures, you know, who are larger than life, and see that there still is that human side to them in terms of how they deal with people, how they work with people, and people from all walks of life. That, to me, is very impressionable for me. You know, I then fast forward uh, in the continuing. I was fortunate before going to the administration, I thought it was very important to getting another degree. So not only did I have a master's program, finishing a master's program and getting into the government early on, I also decided that I wanted to go back to school and get a law degree. Having been someone who'd worked a lot of political positions, it's like, to me, it's about the knowledge base that you have. It's just like, what do you have in your career that could prepare you to help propel you forward? What is the work that you can do that can give you a foundation? Once again, you know, kind of thinking back, by my father always saying, you know, it's all about education. That's where the real competition is. It's just another foundation for me. But I was fortunate after the Clinton administration to work uh, in a number of law firms, became a partner in one of the largest firms uh, in the country. And it just gave me another way, I, I would call it, to use that law degree, not just have one. I just look at all these things as just building blocks, just building blocks to get you to the point of where you are now. Having practice law, it was also important during the uh, most recent era. I was uh, fortunate. I knew Secretary Clinton. And when you talk about role models, I mean, that's like one of my greatest role models is the secretary. Uh, I met the secretary during the campaign early on in my career, worked in the White House, worked with her and her team through a lot of different political situations. 
And then uh, while I was practicing law and she was running for the Senate and then she decided she wanted to run for president, she did. And then you have to look at the tenacity of someone like her and, and what she believes in is always, I believe, it's just like the foundation of where I come from, something greater than yourself. When she was asked to join the State Department and as she was putting her team together along with the Obama administration, asked to serve with her at the State Department. So all these varied experiences to me have... Um, I've been guided by the people that I watch and the people that I work with and the people that I observe. A lot of them all, uh, fortunately, had law degrees. And so it was like a great foundation of understanding that you can sit back and look at where others are and see, you know, is that something that you want to do? Being able to serve at the State Department in our highest level of diplomacy uh, in our foreign, foreign policy establishment as a special representative for global intergovernmental affairs, I then was able to pick the work that I had done early on in my career, working with state and local leaders, and do the same thing at state, but doing it in a global fashion. So I look at every step along the way of my professional career no matter how long I stayed or how short I stayed, was preparing me for where I am right now. Because it is about advocacy. It's about uh, advocating for America's businesses. It's about advocating for the work that this administration wants us to look at. The thing that is also important is that um, when you're in an environment like I am now, you've got to like pull on all your skills and all of your experiences in order to work towards being being successful. And, and I just was thankful that throughout my career, I've had good role models like Secretary Clinton and others that gives you a foundation to do the work and have the ability to know that you can be successful in a role like this. As I listen to your story, I, it, it sounds like every step was a, a next higher set of progress. And if I think about my own story, there were some times I fell off. Mm-hmm. You know, some things went <laughs> no question way differently than I had hoped. Right? How did you navigate some of those challenges? Because I imagine some young women thinking, "I can never get there." Oh no, you can get there. You have to be persistent, and you have to be focused. I worked for a lot of political candidates before we won. And my friends would say, you're not winning, and you're still in the business. You're not winning, and you're still in the business. It's not, to me, just about winning. I always say, even when you lose, you win. And in that statement, it is about what relationships did you develop? What skills did you develop? What, what network were you entered into? How were you able to try to have impact on the people that you were working with? Even when I went through campaign after campaign after campaign, and not winning, because, you know, the goal is to win. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the goal is to win, not only the goal to win, you know, you, you know, you're kind of thinking, is there an opportunity there? If you do win, and when you don't win, it's very devastating. I mean, it's not just on the candidate. It's on all the people that voted for them. It's on all the supporters. It's on all the people that were there believing in the goal of what you were trying to achieve. And so when you think about that, it does say, well, if my goal was to work for this person and the person does not win, then what do I do? I was glad that after having worked in a number of situations, I did decide to go back to law school because I wanted to make sure that I had a profession. I wanted to have a foundation that I could be able to turn on a dime and be able to say, hey, look, you're not just out, you know, because that's what happens. Some people get become so devastated after a loss. You can take too long to try to pull yourself back up. I'm a single woman. 
<laughs> I, you know, my, I have to take care of myself. I wanted to make sure from a professional standpoint that no matter whether I was on these this political journeys that I was participating in, that if that did not go the way I wanted it to go, that I also had a way that I could always take care of myself. And so once I had that that legal background and passed the bar and the old nine yards, I felt very comfortable in taking those chances, taking those risks, because my career is not like a straight line. I'd call it a zig and a zag. Sometimes you're zigging and sometimes you're zagging, you know, and, uh, and sometimes you're up and, and sometimes, you know, you're just standing with your feet in the ground, just hoping that, that you have planted a great foundation that you can move, continue to move your life, move your career forward. So it's not always about the clear victory. You've got to kind of see down the road as to where you want to go. And then also I tell people it's not about the quick victory. It's about longevity. And a lot of people just, they get impatient. And I think we all get impatient. But the goal is not what sometimes is right in front of you. It may be something that's down the road that you're able to, to see or not see. But if you are prepared from a professional experience, academic, whatever, then you want to see that you have the choices or you have the options to be able to participate in a space that you might not have realized. I love the idea, especially for women. I know this is also true for men, but especially for women that we have careers we can fall back on. Because mm-hmm. even if you're in a great marriage, sometimes stuff mm-hmm. goes wrong. Yeah, I, well, I'm say I was married 10 years, got a divorce. But as my father would say, you got an education, you can always take care of yourself, mm-hmm. no matter what happens. And that all is taking place around your life and your changes in your career. And so when life, you know, comes upon you, you still got to be ready. You still got to be prepared to move forward. And that you can support yourself gives you a set of options. That's right. <laughs> that is, in fact, a luxury that many women don't have. That's why I encourage all women. I encourage uh, black females, women of color, all women. It doesn't really matter to me. I have been fortunate uh, that I have worked for people who champion young professionals and always wanting to make sure that we leave the door open and pull them up. Somebody always helped me. I saw my parents help so many people. Their biggest thing was you always got to help somebody else. It's not just about you. It's not just about you and your family, Mm -hmm. your sisters and your brother. It's about how you cast that wider net. I love seeing people flourish the same way I think people who helped me watched me or encouraged me to move forward. And then also having people who can be there when the times aren't as glamorous or aren't as rosy as you want them to be. I mean, you can still have a whole bunch of degrees and some work experience and still don't get the job you still you want. There is no guarantee. You just got to keep working at it. Well, and you can get the job you want, and it can be terrible. I I remember my one of my girlfriends. She had a breakup of some sort, and her Mm -hmm. mom said that guy's just an idiot. And I was thinking, how wonderful to have someone around you who, no matter what thing happens, they're in your corner. Mm -hmm. Her mom may have been completely wrong, (laughs) but it was just you're my daughter, and you're fabulous. Well, you know, when you talk about a story like that in terms of just someone who is like always in your corner, I've been fortunate that I have a family that we're very, very close. Um, my parents raised us that way, and we've maintained that. We've continued to be close and in each other's lives on a regular, I would say, daily, sometimes daily basis, because it is that the strength of family 
that to me encourages you to keep fighting. It's the strength that I come from a very faith-based family and a, a very long line of, of uh, Methodist ministers. Uh, my sister is a bishop in the United Methodist Church. My grandfather was a, a minister in the Georgia circuit. I had an aunt who was also very revolutionary, one of the first ministers in women ministers in the United Methodist Church. So I've just been surrounded by my individuals who are striving. We were taught also to be there for each other. So that's where faith and family always comes in with me, because unequivocally, when things aren't going the way you want them to go, <laughs> you better have somebody in your corner. I've always had that. And then, you know, with the people that I've worked with, you have to continue to maintain your relationships. You've got to continue to maintain your network. You can never get too busy without ensuring that and asking, not when you just need somebody to help you, but also people want to celebrate with you. They want to celebrate with you. They want to help, and you've got to understand how to ask, and then you've got to also understand how to be grateful and thankful. So, you know, I think all of those kinds of things I've saw and watched uh, my family over the years do, and I try to keep carry that forth all the time. So that was a really rich response. I'm going to try to pull out a few things you said. <laughs> so faith, yours happens to be Methodist, but mm-hmm. irrespective, there's something Irre- bigger than me. Oh, yeah, a- a- irrespective. And now, you know, I'm a AME. So, <laughs> <laughs> but no, something something bigger than you and something that you can lean on. And all of these, you know, high-performing jobs is something that you need to be reflecting on on a regular basis. And it keeps you having a certain level of humility through everything you do. I mean, I watched my parents, my sister, my aunt. It never really was about them. It was always about what it is that they were trying to achieve. We have leadership mindsets that we talk about all the time. First is humility. Mm-hmm. Mindset, not just behavior. Because we've seen, especially in politics, when mics are hot, you think they're not. <laughs> you hear things <laughs> that the candidates wish you hadn't. <laughs> And then the other is being more about doing the right thing than looking good. And then you add things like systemic thinker and collaborating, but focused through your view of doing what is right in the world. And I know there are all kinds of different definitions of good and right, right. <laughs> based in your faith, in your family. Impact, kindness, and generosity. Absolutely. 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 All the time. You know, and then one of the one of the best experiences along this journey that I have was, uh, you know, I was sitting in my living room and um, I was um, getting ready to go to work. And it was it was the year and in the early 90s when Nelson Mandela was coming out of prison. So, you know, this was a very monumental historic day in the, in the United States and a historic day in the world and definitely a historic day in South Africa. Nowhere in my mind that I think I would ever meet this man. And um, one day, uh, about a month, I think he'd been out. I got a phone call because I had worked for Vice President Mondale and had been someone who had been his trip director during his campaign. And I got a call saying, would you come and talk to this nonprofit group called the Democracy for South Africa, which was at that time headed up by Roger Wilkins, uh, who is no longer with us. And people like Harry Belafonte and others were all part of this board. And I said, well, what do you all want me to do? And they said, well, Nelson Mandela, you know, he is the ANC leader and, and he is coming out of prison and he wants to go on this road tour around the world to thank those who stayed the course fighting for his freedom. I said, well, what would you like me to do? And they said, well, we are really seeking someone who can uh, lead the tour for this nonprofit. 
And so they knew about my background and, and, and everything. So I, as I went to speak with them and prepared a plan, they then asked me to uh, put together this team that would take him around the United States. And so, you know, early in my career, I had the unbelievable privilege and honor to lead the team that toured the eight cities around the United States with a figure as historic as not only Nelson Mandela, but it was also William Mandela and it was his family and so many of the people who became leaders in the ANC movement and in South Africa. Now, where would a you know young woman from Georgia, you know, think that I'm sitting over in my law firm and at the time, um, I was an associate, and where would I think that I would ever get that kind of an opportunity? The tour around the United States, starting in Canada, actually, when he first dropped into North America, and then bringing him forth, going everywhere from New York to the very end to California, to be able to work with him, but also to observe and watch and be in that environment with someone who had served all those years uh, in prison come out and be totally undeniable the number one world leader. But to see someone who had been in prison and to come out and watch him, his statesmanship, his his humility, his ability of how he treated people, how he, he worked with all of us, all the Americans who was with him. It was a very small group of us that I put together in the traveling corps along with that board who participated city by city by city. I mean, I'd worked for presidential candidates before, but I'd never seen anything like this. I'd never seen how Americans took to him from all walks of life, women, men, children, black, white, brown. It didn't really matter. Everywhere he went, he was beyond anything imaginable, that people would line the streets, give him ticker tape parades, wanting to hear him, wanting to be with him, Everyone from from political figures to religious leaders to Hollywood celebrities and just basically the young man or woman in the street, the babies, and just packed out stadiums all around the world. And I haven't seen that since. But to know that I had over a week with someone of his magnitude, to me, left a very deep impression on me because he moved way beyond being a politician. He was way beyond a, a politician. He was an icon. He was way beyond a politician. He's an icon. He's like um, uh, someone who comes once in our lifetime. And if we have the chance to be in their environment, that kind of stuff stays with you. When you see a leader like that, how can you, and whatever you do every single day, how can you not bring humility to the situation? How can you not... Uh, know that you need to be collaborative and, and develop partnerships? How do you know that you need to take all of your skills, all of your experiences in any type of situation that you get and know that the good comes with the bad and the bad comes with the good and that you've got to just keep pressing? you got to keep pressing. That's leadership. That's seeing someone who can sit down with the kings and the queens and the leaders and the politicians and the presidents and the whole nine yards and hold his own. This was someone who was in prison for 25 years and walked out, and within weeks, he is on the world stage, and he is sitting down carrying the message about what he wanted to see, the vision that they had, him and the leadership of the ANC for their country, and then to watch it and witness it for it to happen. That's leadership. One of the things we study is vertical leadership, Mm -hmm. so moving up through Mm -hmm. a series of levels of complexity and thinking and things like humility, and he is the case study 
that we talk about, and there are doctoral dissertations written about him, and, (laughs) you know, what did he do that was unique? And how do we help build that kind of leadership versus some of the other things we see that... (laughs) You know, I just think that for me, and I think the people that was around us, it was about, uh, I put a team together of about 100 of us. It was about 10 to 12 per city, uh, working with government and all kinds of and state and local leaders to pull off these types of mega activities. Uh, the thing is, it's observing. That was my initial observation when I very, very first met him in person and laid eyes on him. And to see how respectful he was, we were respectful of him but he was just as respectful of us. He knew we had a job to do. He knew it was going to be hard. He knew that he was still uh, not taken off a list. Uh, it was not an official state visit, but it was bigger than anything that had ever happened in the United States, separate from a visit by the Pope. But also, it was not just a thank you tour. It was a fundraising tour. The ANC, who all these people who had been living in exile, was coming back to South Africa and they needed to raise money in order for the campaigns that they needed to run in order to do the work that they did. And so, you know, having been a student of civil rights and working with all the different leaders who had been working in the apartheid movement for years, to be able to see this person, I don't want to say symbol, but he was the icon. He was the model that everybody was holding up. And to be able to see him walk out, he never let you down. You're just in awe. But even before you and all, you still got work. You got work to do. <laughs> you know, he was a lawyer. He uh, had studied law and practiced before going into prison. And you could just see his mind at work of sitting down with editorial boards and leaders just as he was talking about not just saying thank you, but talking about the mission, talking about where to, where he wanted to lead the country, talking about the challenges that he knew he was going to face, and then asking asking for help, asking for saying thank you, but also I still need your help. This fight is not over. And we saw that soon after that, when apartheid fell, you saw him and he ran and got elected for office. And so sometimes you just kind of forget those kinds of things. I mean, I can't forget them because that's just such a part of me. But every time there's a holiday, uh, there's a group of us who did work together around that time, come together to try to remember what we did and to, to understand that You know, there's so many lessons that we learned and so many that I know I learned that I carry with me every day and everything that I do. And it really is about how you deal with people, how you treat people, how you want people to treat you, how you want to always see, is there something that you can do in your life that can be inspiring to someone else? I go to the Esalen Institute on occasion, and I happen to be there for Uh, meditation and hiking retreat. And I met a gentleman, Richard Rosenthal, who was celebrating, I think, his either 70th or 75th birthday. He was from South Africa. He was involved with Nelson Mandela. And one of the things we forget is the danger that people put their lives in and their families' lives in. Yes. And Richard was one of those people, also an attorney. Mm -hmm. And he, he shared some of the stories. He wrote a book about that journey and losing everything. Mm-hmm. And making that choice 
because Nelson Mandela was such an inspirational yeah. person mm -hmm. and the mission of the ANC and what mm -hmm. they stood for. Mm -hmm. You can't tell the story without also sharing the context of mm -hmm. in exile means your family. Everybody's in danger. Life threats. Yeah. People who've worked their entire careers lost living penniless. The stories are just heartbreaking. Mm -hmm. And he inspired that level of commitment to the mission so he's an icon, but the mission that people are following was so inspirational. Exactly. It seems like it's a both because mm -hmm. he wasn't doing it for personal notoriety. No. Exactly. I mean, what, who would have even thought that it was going to happen like that? I mean, you saw him come out of prison and you saw what was surrounding him. I was an associate in a firm, and when I asked my firm, could I take a leave of absence to go do this? And they were like, absolutely. I mean, they were, and you know, I think people are stunned because they, everybody doesn't really know your journey. They don't know your background mm -hmm. fully. Well, nowadays, I mean, people can find out almost anything they want to know about you. But, <laughs> <laughs> but um, for me, all of that is part of the journey. That story, which I probably rarely even talk about, is part of the journey because it's about people. Mm -hmm. It's about leaders. It's about those who may have dealt with over the course of your careers that it stays in the back of your mind. You just don't know when it's going to come out. And then when you're in these political situations, these moments that we have in time to serve in these kind of capacities, you have to think that you've got to bring all your skills together, everything you've ever done. You fast forward in this journey, <laughs> this leadership journey, this work journey or whatever you want to call it, and to be able to currently right now be in a administration with President Biden, Vice President Harris, people who are about the business of getting it done, and people who themselves walk in the door talking about equity, talking about inclusion. You know, to me, that's leadership because those kinds of issues, especially as they have an impact on women and minorities, it starts at the top. The president walks in doing executive orders. He walks in commanding his saying to his agencies, asking the question, what are we doing and how do we do it better? How do we be more inclusive in everything we do, inclusive in hiring, inclusive in contracting, inclusive in the work that we're doing and collaborating with all the kinds of stakeholders? It doesn't matter whether you're Democrat or Republican. It's about the inclusion of all. And so I just look at whether it's my family, whether it's having the opportunity to have worked for that kind of icon, to have the ability to work for somebody as legendary as Secretary Clinton and others and President Obama. It's good to see along the continuum of my journey this central theme that I try to embody and I try to do it at our agency every single day, asking the question. You got to set the example. You got to be persistent in what it is that you're trying to do, separate from the mission that you're trying to drive every single day that we're doing. Let's move then mm -hmm. to women, mm -hmm. equity, mm -hmm. inclusion diversity. We are living in a very interesting point in time mm -hmm. where in some ways we have more opportunities. And yet I heard someone say the other day, this is the first time that women have fewer rights than their grandmothers had in some ways. It's both we can go to college and get jobs that we wouldn't have been able to have, and we can't make choices about our bodies. Mm -hmm. What do you say to a young woman or a middle-aged woman? <laughs> any woman, any woman. About it's a point in time. Hopefully it's a fleeting point in time. What, what would you share? I'm really fortunate that every position I probably have ever had 
has always had work to do about how do we be, be more inclusive? How can there be more equity in what it is that we're doing? I'm fortunate that I can always be looking at this from a business perspective and a commercial perspective, because I think we have to spend just as much time on that as we do on everything else, because really, at the end of the day, you know, if you can't take care of yourself and your family, it doesn't matter about anything else. And women are fighting, and I think making some great strides. I think women of color are doing the same. Black women are doing the same. But we still have inequities. And that's why somebody said to me, well, do you think it's something that you fight for every single day? I think you have to. It is an area, when we look across the board, whether we're looking at the big issues about the rights and the choices that women can make, can they be their own? Or whether it's about women who are trying to grow their businesses and go and still get turned down and minorities get turned down, blacks get turned down, brown, you name it, every day if they want to try to get some access to some capital. We know that um, one of the things is very clear. I, early on in my career, also worked at the United States Chamber of Commerce. And so that's a different experience in the sense that I was fortunate to be there at a time working on outreach uh, and education about the chamber movement around uh, inclusion for women and minorities. When you think about the fact that women-owned businesses and minority-owned businesses are some of the fastest-growing businesses in the United States, when you think about the fact that small businesses are the backbone of the U.S. economy, there's no reason any of them should be left out of anything. It should be, how do we do more? How do we provide more? And that's one of the things when I came into the U.S. XM, I was really glad to see that in our 2019 reauthorization, there was also this charge from Congress to make more than 30% of our authorization of $135 billion to make more available for women and minority entrepreneurs and for small business. And so when you say small business, it's not just women and minorities, it's LGBTQ, it's tribal, it's rural communities, it's, it's people with disabilities. I mean, it's the entire way that those underserved or not as well-served communities need to have access. And so when you look at a government agency like USXM and the tools that we have, I'm out every day talking about what it is that we do if you want to grow your business, if you want to expand your business, if you want to expand your exports, if you're even thinking about wanting to export. Why do we want to keep talking about this? We want more women and minorities and small businesses included in this economy. We want them to be a part of the economic prosperity that has been promised to all of us. So we, we're trying to become the bank for everybody. And the only way we can do that is to be out talking with entrepreneurs and we out talking with business owners, out talking with organizations, not traditional and non-traditional organizations, creating new partnerships with those who have never heard about the fact that this agency could help you expand and grow your business if you're exporting. So if we have the ability at xm.gov, I got to put that out there. <laughs> if we have the ability to do one-on-one -on -one consultations, we during the COVID period um, did over 600 webinars about trying to educate entrepreneurs about the work that we do and how whether the tools or whether loans or guarantees or insurance can assist them if they're working to export and, and work with foreign buyers. We have to. I think it's, it's just part of the mission.
if we're going to be inclusive in the call that the president put out for all of his government agencies to look to see how we can grow and expand our American oil business, how can we help them compete? And competing, they need financing. They need to be competitive against all others. And so for me, it's exciting because when I can see or hear the stories of women-owned businesses, when I can see and hear the stories of minority-owned businesses and that they have used an excellent product. On my first 100 days at the agency, I went to Pennsylvania and visited the Sharma family. And they learned about the tools that XM had from a conference they went to. And uh, they started out, it went from $2 million to $3 million to $7 million business using a lot of the tools that XM had. So we want to try to lift up more of those stories, lift up more of those companies. I definitely this year just instituted a, uh, and named the Cheers Council on the Advisory for Advancing Women in Business, an advisory uh, committee on small business. And you would think that a bank like the XM Bank, of U.S. government, we would have had something like that. Why do we need those kinds of individuals around us? We need more people who can tell us how we can help businesses grow and expand. We need people to talk about the challenges that they have and to work with us to make sure that we're answering the questions that they need answered, not the way we want to answer them, but the way the, the small business answers them. And then we are also letting them know we're not out here by ourselves on this island, that, you know, there is the Small Business Administration, there is the Department of Commerce, there is other government agencies that working in tandem, all of us, in what we call a whole-of-government approach that says we don't have to compete with each other, that we need to be offering up a solution People want solutions. If there's a government program, they want to know how is that going to help their business. And then they want you to be about the business of helping their business. But the other thing they want to know is that we're being welcoming, that we're welcoming, we're inclusive, that we are looking across the board, no matter what community you're in. You know, a rural community, or it's not all about what's happening in the urban core. It's what's happening across America. So we spend a lot of time, uh, we have 12 regional offices, we spend a lot of time talking to businesses, talking to banks, talking to lenders. We're trying to get more people in uh, work with, you know, non-traditional institutions that actually have those kinds of networks. Because we're not in every network, and there's no way that we can be. So we've got to always be out telling our story. And to say we're welcoming, we're welcoming, we're open, we're, we're trying to be inclusive. We want to make sure that we, as they say, answer your phone call when you try to get some assistance from a federal government agency. I've worked with a local university student classes. It helped me develop an export plan and, and some of that stuff. Because when you're busy running a business, it's a big world. And do I start in the Netherlands or do I... <laughs> try to go into India. But how the heck would that happen? That's exactly right. You are so right, Maureen. It, and that's one of the things that I think we have drilled down on a lot at XM. We are really soup to nuts in the sense that people don't know. And that's why we have to partner with universities. We have to partner with trade associations. We have to partner with chambers and state and local governments. We have to partner with religious communities, tribal communities, and go into them, go to them not just waiting for them to come to us. Because, you know, climbing the government uh, mountain can be too steep, too high. And going to your point, people are busy. I saw my parents, they're busy every single day. They don't have time to be going to the state capitol or going to the agency downtown and sitting there taking time away from their schedule to learn. 
technology is making it better. We saw through COVID that people are much more accepting of um, virtual opportunities to learn. But still, at the end of the day, you and I both know sometimes it just it's that one-on-one contact. It's that small group contact that makes people feel like they can ask the question and that we can have the answer. So we stand ready to work with governments. We stand ready to work with uh, entrepreneurs and executive organizations who want to learn more about what it is that we're doing. And just to let them know that these tools are not just for large entities, but they're for everyone. Can you speak to the people like me who are saying, why would I do that? I haven't even broken California open yet. You know why? Because over 90%, I think it's about 95% of the consumer marketplace outside of the United States. I mean, my parents did. They never looked beyond the borders of the, of, uh, the U.S. But my father back then, though, he didn't just stay local with his movie and logistics company. He went statewide. Then after he went statewide, he went throughout the United States. If I think about it now, that's pretty revolutionary <laughs> back then. A lot of people just don't even think like that. What we are trying to do is to say we want people to think like that. And that's why partnering with organizations who they themselves are trying to help their businesses, going to the organization of accountants, going to the organization of farmers, going to the peanut association or whatever it is, we got to meet people where they are. And then we've got to talk with them about the fact that we know for a fact that data shows if you are an exporter, a small business exporter, you will be probably more resilient. Your revenues are going to be higher. You have the ability to sustain disruption. Look at what happened to COVID and so many people was put out of business because they were only focused on what they were doing in their own backyard. We're saying that even with all the issues that have cropped up over the years, exporting is an opportunity for not just goods, but also services. And a lot of people think, wait a minute, why? You mean services? I can do, I can do service. Yes, you can. How do you find out about these opportunities? That's why us working directly with the mayors, the governors, the county officials is important. I've had time to spend with uh, the mayor's association, with the leaders in the governor's association, to say to them, you know, we want to work with your state and city and county economic development teams and their international teams because they're right there on the ground, they're local, they're in the backyard, they're in, if you're gonna go somewhere, you might not, you're not gonna come to Washington, but you might go downtown to your local government, to the economic development team, and see what is going on that I might need to take advantage of. And so, like you say, if you're looking at sectorial, if you're looking at the areas, I definitely have to say our Commerce Department is really good at that. That's who they are. They, they've got more chapters and verses <laughs> between what is going, what is growing, where country interests are. On our website, we also have the country schedule as to where we're open and to whether we're talking to short, medium, or long-term loans. We are constantly saying to small businesses, please work with our embassy teams. They're on the ground in, in every country, almost, where we're open. And they have economic and political teams that can help and assist them. So if you have an idea or if you're working with your business and you're thinking, how can I go into a particular area? 
you might not want to say, oh, you might like, oh, climbing that mountain at the XM Bank might be a little too high. But before you do that, you can do that homework now on the Internet. You can do that home that, that work now in your local economy, dealing with the different offices. And I can tell you, I've seen this time and time again, and this is not just being in this job. There are a lot of agencies out there, and we're trying to partner with more of them to help businesses begin to think about exporting and where do they begin and then they show them where the fact that, you know, they go down to their local bank and the bank might not want to take that risk. That's who we are. We're that agency that we are there to step in when others may find that they don't want to commit their resources. We worked with the Small Business Development Organization in Ohio, yep. and I was hearing a lot, why would you possibly go overseas? You haven't, you're not ready. And yet, it was a, a really good choice. And so for anyone who's listening, who who is hearing the same thing I was, yeah. don't be too big for your britches or whatever the yeah. thing is. And we're now saying, yes, you should be. You need to be, because that's where the marketplace is. That's where the marketplace is going. And that there are agencies out here in the federal government, the state government, the local government that can help you. And we hope that people think about XM as being one of them. As we wrap up, any last encouragement for our listeners? <laughs> Maureen, first of all, thank you for just giving me a, an opportunity to chat today. I know we talked about a lot of different things. But, you know, I, I just think that to know that we're in a world right now that is much more opening, much more open, much more welcoming. Every country that I deal with, every town I go in, domestic or globally, they're all talking about opportunities for women. They're talking about women empowerment. They're talking about how they can work with their small businesses. They know even in their countries, that's who's creating the jobs. That's who's the backbone of their economy. And they've got to grow them. I say to everyone, just keep their eyes open and keep their focus. And if it's something that they want to do, be persistent about it because there's help out there for you to help to be able to compete and for you also to be able to win. 95% of the market. I know it's over 90% of the market is outside of the United States. That's pretty compelling just as a starting point. It is very <laughs> compelling, yes. So Rita Joe, before yes. we close, how would people reach you? XM.gov. That is the best way, www.xm.gov. We are on LinkedIn. We're on Twitter. We're on Facebook. We're on Instagram. Go to the website. Go to social media. We're out there. We're being very aggressive about telling our story and being in the place that we can help. And your story is so inspirational. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you to ILA. Please also like and follow and share our podcasts comment give us five stars <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much thank you so much yes. Rita Joe. 